Hey, West Village family, how's it going out there in internet land? Uh, Chris here, joined by um, the lovely, on my lovely uh, sweater here, Leo the Llama. You might be asking yourself, I'm sure you're asking yourself, why is Chris wearing that sweater? Well, we are starting our Advent series, as you've already heard. Uh, today, we are getting rocking and rolling uh, through a four-week series to prepare us for the Christmas season. Our Advent series is going to be called A Glorious Disruption. Uh, and, and the reason for that is because as we look at the Advent stories, the stories leading up to the birth of Jesus, what we see is there are all these disruptive moments in the lives of the characters, the people in the stories, moving towards the birth of Jesus. And so for us as a church, we want to just pause and go, hey, this has been a disruptive year. I wouldn't call it a glorious disruptive uh, year, it's, but it's been a disruptive year nonetheless. My, my daughter came home from school the other day and, and she said, uh, hey, Dad, let me show you something. And so she showed me this meme, and it was a picture of a, um, a porta potty that was on fire. And it, was, uh, it had the like, text on it, and the text said, uh, if 2020 was a scented candle. Uh, yeah, that's what happens when you send your kids to public school. Um, but, but it's pretty true, right? The year 2020, it's just been a disaster. It's been a disruption, to say the least. And so as we look at this Advent story, these disruptive stories in the lives of these people. My, my hope and my prayer is that uh, in some way, shape, or form, it would speak into the disruption that we have experienced. And so what we're going to do, again, we're just going to look at four different uh, scenes in the life of different characters leading up to the birth of Jesus. So if you have a Bible, grab it, open it up to the Gospel of Luke, Luke chapter 1, and we're going to look at the story of uh, Zechariah and Elizabeth. Um, and so Luke writes this gospel, and he's kind of telling a historical account of the life of Jesus. And so here in Luke chapter 1, he's, he's preparing us for the birth of Jesus. And this is where he starts. We're going to skip the first five verses and jump down to verse 5 in Luke chapter 1. And this is what he writes. Luke says, In the time of Herod, king of Judea. So let me just stop there for a second and kind of set up the, the context of what's happening. So at this point in the history of the nation of Israel— they are, in, um, they are in exile, and they are being ruled by a tyrannical government, by the, the Roman Empire, okay? And, and this particular king, King Herod, who's king over this particular area, this Judea area, is a particularly awful king. And so Luke is trying to set the scene for us of this being a really bad time in the life of the history of God's people. But it was worse than it seems in just this half of a verse. Because to kind of just step back for a second and see the bigger scope of what's happening in the history of the nation of Israel, if you were to turn a few pages to the left in your Bible, just before the gospel accounts, you'd come to uh, the last prophet in the Old Testament, the Italian prophet Malachi. Some call him Malachi. I like to call him Malachi. And Malachi, the prophet, was the last prophet to speak in the Old Testament. Now, in your Bible, it is just a few pages of Scripture uh, between Malachi and where the Gospels accounts of the life and ministry of Jesus start off. But in the time of the people of God, it was 400 years. And so what that space represents between your Old Testament and your New Testament is 400 years of silence. 400 years of God not speaking to his people. Now, just to kind of give us the full orb of what's happening here, this was a people who were used to hearing from God. God spoke to them through kings. He spoke to them through 
prophets. He spoke through them, uh, to them rather through supernatural appearances. He, his word, his law, these were all the ways in which God had spoke. He, he had been a speaking God, a God who dwelt with the people. And here we have this season in the life of the people of God, but not just a season, a long season, a 400-year-long season where God had said nothing, where it was just empty, where it was silence, not even a word. And at this point, the people of God were, were wondering, God, where are you? God, have you forgotten us? God, God where have you gone? Have, where, where are you? For many of us, 2020, that's, that's been the feeling, right? We, we look at what's happening in the world and it feels as if God has forgotten us. God, where are you? God, you've left us. God, you're silent. God, you know, did you miss an email, right? Did, did, the, did the forces of evil or darkness or whatever slip one past the goalie? Like, how could this have happened? Like, we understand the feeling that the people of God would have had at this time. It felt like God was completely silent, completely absent, and completely gone. That's where they were. They felt hopeless. They felt helpless. At this particular point in their history, everything felt empty and barren. And Luke goes on. He's going to introduce us to some characters here, the characters of Zechariah and Elizabeth. So verse 5, in the time of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah, and his wife Elizabeth was also a descendant of Aaron. Okay, so we introduced to Zechariah and Elizabeth, and what we learn about them so far is Zechariah was a priest, which on the surface seems like a really big deal, but at this point in the history of Israel, there were a lot of priests, and so Zechariah was actually a priest in a smaller town. He was kind of a lower-level priest. Imagine sort of like a small country bumpkin church, right? Like that's where where Zechariah would have been doing ministry, but we learn more about them. Look at what it says in verse 6. Both of them were righteous in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commandments and decrees blamelessly. So, so we get this picture of Zechariah and Elizabeth. They're in full-time ministry for the most part. Like, they are good people. What, what Luke is not trying to say to us here is that they're perfect people, but they're good people. They're trying really hard to follow Jesus. They're trying really hard to do what he wants them to do. They're trying really hard to be, you know, good church-going folk. Like, these were good people. And then look at what he writes next, verse 7. He says, but... Okay, so you got, on one hand, you have this, this reality for Zechariah and Elizabeth. They're good people, but, verse 7, but they were childless because Elizabeth was not able to conceive and they were both very old. So Luke comes in and he says, on one hand, Zechariah and Elizabeth, good folks, go to church, love Jesus, following him, serving him, doing all the right things. But then there's this reality that they are forced to deal with, which is they are not able to have children. They're old, they're getting on in age, and they're unable to have children. Now, for a first century, uh, you know, couple, this would have been devastating, very devastating even in our own culture. There's a lot of a shame, there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of uneasiness around infertility, and it was very much the same in this culture, although perhaps even worse. There were economic realities. If you didn't have offspring, you didn't have someone to take care of you. There were no social programs offered by the government. Uh, your, your, your legacy or your name couldn't go on beyond your own generation. 
And oftentimes, in the first century context at least, people associated childlessness with sinfulness. And what we see here, what Luke does here, just in a couple of small verses, he kind of blows up our categories for how we think God works. Uh, so often we have this understanding of God uh, that it's, it's somewhat transactional. We, it, it's something, it, go, it goes something like this. You know, if you're a good person, then God will bless you. If you do good things, then, then God will take care of you. If, if, you're, you know, if you're like Zechariah and Elizabeth, righteous, blameless, go to church on Sundays, right? Like the, the old adage that we, we say often around West Village, don't smoke, don't chew, and don't date girls who do. If you do those things, if you kind of toe the line religiously, then God will have to bless you. There's kind of this transactional uh, understanding of how God works. And we really don't have within our understanding of of the nature and essence of God, this, this concept that it's possible, there's, it's possible that God would allow bad things to happen to us. Uh, just the other day, we were sitting at the dinner table having some spiritual conversations with our kids. And, and one of the questions that, that my youngest, Lucas, asked was, how could God allow something like COVID to even happen? That's a good question. It's a really good question. In fact, it's a question that a lot of people have asked. There's been preachers that have gone on television and said that COVID is God's judgment against the world. That because we, you know, have forsaken him, because we have, you know, taken prayer out of schools or because our culture has affirmed same-sex marriage, God has brought his hand of judgment against us. Friends, can can I just suggest that that view of God, it's demonic. It's demonic to think that, that God is like an angry parent up in heaven looking for reasons to smite us. That if you step out of line or do the wrong thing, that God's wrath will come upon you. Luke blows that notion of how God works right out of the water here when he says, Zechariah and Elizabeth, they were righteous and blameless. They, they were doing their best to follow Jesus and yet... They were unable to have children. See, what Luke is not saying here is that this was some curse that came upon them, but what Luke is trying to do is he's trying to pull this thread out in this story. And I want you to see the connection here between what's happening in the, the, the reality of the history of the nation of Israel and what's happening in the life of Zechariah and Elizabeth. Nation of Israel, 400 years of silence, empty, alone, barren. God, where are you? Have you forgotten us? Zechariah and Elizabeth, same thing. God, we feel hopeless. God, we feel helpless. God, have you forgotten us? Where are you? And so many of us, we feel that. It feels like We are all alone. But what we're going to see in this text, in this story of Zechariah and Elizabeth, is that God is here. God speaks into the emptiness. He speaks into the void. He speaks into the barrenness, just like in Genesis 1-1, when he speaks life into existence. He speaks life into the nothingness, and creation happens Here, God is going to speak. So look at what happens next. Picking up in verse eight, Luke chapter one, verse eight. 
once Zechariah, sorry, once Zechariah's division was on duty and he was serving as priest before God, verse nine, he was chosen by lot according to the custom of the priesthood to go into the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And when time the time came for the burning, when the time came for the burning of, sorry, let me try that one more time. And when the time for the burning of incense came, there we go, who writes this stuff, hey? All the assembled worshipers were praying outside. So what's happening here, okay? This is kind of a big deal. It doesn't read like a big deal. It reads more like the phone book, but it is kind of a big deal. So what would happen is all the priests uh, would, would come to the temple and there were, at this time in the history of the nation of Israel, there were 32,000 priests. And they would divide the 32,000 priests up into different groups. There were 24 different groups, and each group had roughly 1,300 priests in it. And two times a year, your group would make a trek to, the, to Jerusalem, to the temple. And the 1,300 priests would come together. And what would happen is they would cast lots out of the 1,300. One of you would be chosen to go into the temple, not into the Holy of Holies, but into the holy place right next to the Holy of Holies. And you would be uh, granted the honor of, of pinching, burning some incense. And that incense represented the prayers on behalf of the people of God. And so Zechariah, again, remember him and Elizabeth, they're old. He's been a priest for a long time. So this is not his first time at the temple, right? He, he had been coming year after year, twice a year coming. And what would happen? They would cast lots and he would lose. They would cast lots and he would lose. They would cast lots and, and he would lose, 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 lose. It was kind of like, you know, me and gym class, always picked last all the time, right? That's Zechariah's reality. But then here on this day, on this day, at this moment, at this particular time, Zechariah's name comes up. Zechariah gets selected to go into the temple. And this old man would have gotten up. He would have hobbled into the temple. All the other priests would have gotten down prostrate to, uh, prostrate to worship, hands out, worshiping God. Zechariah hobbles into the temple. He pinches the incense and he prays. Luke's trying to show us here. He's, he's trying to give us a picture of this reality that God is up to something. He's about to do something. There's like this thread of grace that is being drawn out for us by Luke. Like why now? Why this moment? Why right after Luke had just mentioned all the emptiness of the nation in the history of the nation of Israel, all the emptiness for Zechariah and Elizabeth, it's because God's about to do something. And so Zechariah comes, he pinches the incense and, and he prays. The question is, what does he pray for? Well, most scholars would say that he prayed for two things. First, he prayed for a son, for him and his wife, right? They were old, they were barren, and they wanted children. And so he would have prayed, God, God, would you allow us to have children? And then the second thing that most scholars believe he prayed, and this was because one of the prayers that they were to pray as they pinched incense, representing prayers on behalf of the people, was that God would send his promised Messiah. Again, if you go back to Malachi chapter four, right at the end of the Old Testament, there is one of the last thing God, things God speaks is a prophetic utterance, a word that one day one would come who would rescue and redeem the nation of Israel. 
And so as the priests would go into the holy place, as they would pinch the incense, this is what they would pray. God, send. Send your Messiah. Send the one who will save your people. Well, look at what happens next, verse 11. So Isaiah's in the holy place. He's pinched the incense. Verse 11, then an angel of the Lord appeared to him standing at the right side of the altar of incense. Verse 12, when Zechariah saw him, he was startled and he was gripped with fear. So an angel shows up, okay, shows up. Zechariah's scared. Makes sense so far, right? We're, we're tracking so far. Then look at verse 13. But the angel said to him, now stop here for a second. Okay, this is a big moment. It, it's easy to miss it, but it's a big moment. Remember everything I've said so far, right? God has been silent for how long? Four Hundred years. He said nothing for 400 years. And here we have the first instant in the last 400 years where God speaks. He actually says something. The silence is broken. God intervenes. He speaks into the barrenness. And what does he say? Remember what, what we, we intimated that Zechariah prayed, right? Well, now we're gonna find out what he prayed because look at what the angel said. Verse 13, but the angel said to him, do not be afraid. Okay, you don't need to be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayers have been heard. So the thing you prayed, it's been heard by God. Your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son and you are to call him John. That word, or that name rather, John, means the Lord is gracious. So there's the answer to his first prayer. Verse 14, he will be a joy and a delight to you and many will rejoice. So there's gonna be something about this son named John that you are going to have that will not just bless you and your wife Elizabeth, but many will rejoice because of his birth. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord, and he's never to take wine or fermented drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit. In other words, he's gonna be set apart for a particular ministry. He will be filled with the Holy Spirit even before he is born. And then verse 16, he will bring back many of the people of Israel to the Lord their God. What are we hearing? We're starting to hear that there's a grander purpose for Zechariah and Elizabeth to have this son. And then verse 17, put your pretty little eyes down on verse 17 because this is a direct quote out of Malachi chapter four. And he will go before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of parents to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteousness and to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. What's happening here? Zechariah goes into the temple, he prays, he pinches the incense. What does God do? He sends an angel. What does the angel say? Zechariah, I've heard your prayers. Your prayers are going to be answered. You are going to have a son, but your son is not going to just be a son for you. Your son is going to be one who through him, the nations will be blessed. He will be the fulfillment of Malachi chapter four. Now, if you go back to Malachi chapter four, what you see is a prophecy, not of the coming Messiah, but of one who will come to prepare the way for the Messiah. One who will come, who will be like Elijah. He will come and have a spirit like Elijah preparing the way for the one who is to come. Who is John? Well, we will come to know him as John the Baptist. And what is John the Baptist's ministry? His ministry is to prepare the way for who? Jesus. Jesus. 
the one who will rescue and redeem the nation of Israel, but then through whom all, all the earth will be blessed. All of God's people will be rescued. All of God's people will be redeemed through Jesus, the coming Messiah. So what are we seeing? We're seeing the prayers of Zechariah being answered. Now, this was a disruption to be sure. I have no doubt in my mind that Zechariah did not anticipate that this was going to be happening. I'm sure he prayed it, but it was probably one of those weak prayers, you know? The ones you pray because you're supposed to pray. And yet in the midst of his prayer, in the midst of this moment, God shows up, disrupts him, and it's glorious. It's absolutely glorious. Now, what I want to do is quickly just pull out two things from uh, what's happening here, this interaction between Zechariah and the angel that I think will be helpful for us in this moment. And the first one is this, it's that God answers prayer. Uh, for many of us, as we've said many times already this morning, we, we understand what it feels like to be Zechariah and Elizabeth, right? Uh, we, we understand what it feels like to uh, maybe, maybe not actually experience physical barrenness in the sense of not being able to have children, although some of you, to be sure, know what that feels like. But maybe there's a spiritual barrenness. Maybe there's a dryness to your soul in this season. Uh, there's a reality that we're all wrestling with where our, our rhythms have been completely taken from us, all our spiritual rhythms, right? Like we're, we're watching this uh, at home in our pajamas with a cup of coffee, right? As opposed to with a group of people singing our faces off for Jesus. Uh, we're not able to meet with our community group, with our DNA group. Our spiritual rhythms have been somewhat hijacked and taken away. And so perhaps in you, there's this spiritual dryness. Perhaps in you, there's this brokenness in your family, like the, the stress of what COVID has brought you know, it's producing within your family this, this reality of emptiness. Uh, maybe there's strife between you and your spouse or you and your kids. Maybe there's economic hardship that you're facing. The reality is you understand what it feels like to be Zechariah and Elizabeth who were very much so wondering where God is, why he had forgotten them, why he had left them. And for you in this moment, you're asking questions like, why doesn't God hear my prayers? Why, why when I pray does it feel like it hits the ceiling and doesn't get any further? Maybe if you're, if you're honest, you've actually gotten to this place where there's some cynicism, some bitterness, some hard-heartedness that has set in and you don't even believe God answers prayer anymore. But friends, make no mistake about it, he does. God always answers our prayers. Now, sometimes he says no. We don't always like that. But sometimes he does. Sometimes he says yes. And sometimes, like in the case of Zechariah and Elizabeth, he says, not yet, but one day. For Zechariah and Elizabeth, this was their one day. So think about this with me for a second. Is it possible that right now, the moment that you're standing in, the blessings that you are enjoying 
But those are actually the blessings of prayers that were prayed years before where we find ourselves. Like, I, I, on some level, I understand, I think I understand what this might feel like. I mean, I mean as my kids and as my children have gotten older, um, you know, my, my, the way that I look at them, it started to change. Uh, the, the things I pray for them, it started to change. Uh, the way that I pray for them, it started to change. The way that I view them, it started to change. When they were younger, I felt like I could control them, get them to do whatever I wanted. As they get older, you have less and less control, less and less say in their life, less and less ability to predict and determine where their lives are going to go. But the one thing you can do as a parent is pray. And I pray more for my kids now than I ever have. And there's a reality that the realization of those prayers might not come today. They might come 10 years from now, 15 years from now, 50 years from now. But I'm going to pray because God hears me. And so the blessings that you are enjoying right now, that you're standing in right now, might be the fruit of prayers that were prayed many years ago before you. And then if that's also true, is it not also possible? Is it not also is it not also possibly true that even though right now it feels like God is not hearing you, he's, he's silent, he's forgotten you and your prayers are hitting the ceiling, that the, the fruit of what you're praying might not be realized for quite some time. Isn't it still worth praying those prayers? know that somebody might be standing on the blessing of God because of prayers that you prayed today. Friends, God hears you. He has not forgotten you. The second thing I want to pull out of what's happening here between Zechariah and the angel, and, and this is significant, and I, I, I actually think this is one of the most helpful, hopeful things that we might have to cling to in this season. Here it is, that somehow God in his grace uses our lives, he uses our pain, he uses our circumstances, and he uses our prayers for his redemptive purposes. That nothing we go through happens in vain, not one thing. Now, let's, let, let, me, let me help you see this here in the text, okay? I'm gonna have to do a little bit of work. So you go back to verse 13, what is the angel said to Zechariah, the angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zechariah, your prayer has been heard. Okay, so Zechariah prays. The angel says, God heard your prayer. And look at what he says next. Your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son. So what's the angel saying to Zechariah? The angel saying, Zechariah, you're gonna have a son. Why are you gonna have a son? You're gonna have a son because you prayed for a son. You prayed for a son, therefore you're gonna have a son. Okay, following me here? Is that, that you tracking with me? Okay, now fast forward to verse 17. What does verse 17 say? I, I won't read all of verse 17, but all, verse 17 is all a quote from Malachi chapter four, which is this prophetic uh, utterance that God makes in, in Malachi chapter four about one who would come prepare the way for the Messiah. And the angel is saying the, the son you're going to have is going to be the fulfillment of Malachi chapter four. So again, what we're seeing here is that the prayers of Elizabeth and Zechariah are are they're moving these redemptive moments along. So, so let me ask us just a couple of questions to kind of make this like explicit and clear, okay? The first question is this. 
the Zechariah and Elizabeth's son come in response to Zechariah and Elizabeth's prayer. According to the text, okay? Not according to uh, your theological disposition, just straight up according to the text, according to what the angel tells us. The answer is yes. The answer has to be yes. That's what the angel said. God has heard your prayers. You will have a son. Seems black and white to me. But let me ask you another question. I'm going to push us a little bit on this one, okay? This is going to, this is going to kind of push us, challenge us, maybe, maybe, maybe push our boxes of how God works, uh, kind of blow those up just a little bit, okay? Does the fulfillment of the prophecy in Malachi hinge on the prayer of Zechariah and Elizabeth? Now be careful, okay? Don't answer too quickly. It's a good thing we're not actually meeting in person because there's always like one or two people when I ask these questions, they like, boom, shoot out like knee-jerk answer and they're, they're usually wrong. So you might've said it out loud. I can't hear you, it's fine. But here, here's the reality. You can't say no to that. You can't answer that question, no. Because that's not what the text says. What does the text say? Verse 13, guys, you're getting a son. Zechariah, you're going to have a son. Why are you going to have a son? Because God heard your prayers. He heard your prayers. You're going to have a son. And let me tell you what this son's going to be like. He's going to be the fulfillment of Malachi chapter 4. So the prophecy in Malachi chapter 4 being fulfilled hinges on the prayer of Zechariah. Hinges on the prayer of Zechariah and Elizabeth. And some of you are going to push back. You're going to push back and you're going to say, yeah, yeah, yeah. but if Zechariah, you know, if, if he didn't pray, if he wasn't the guy, then, then God would have, you know, he would have figured it out some other way because God's God and, and you know, he, he can just do that. He would have figured it out. But here's the problem with that answer. Two problems. One, the text doesn't give you that freedom because that's not what the text says. The text says that you're going to get a son. This is what your son's going to be like and you're going to get that son because you prayed. In other words, the son comes because you prayed. The fulfillment of Malachi chapter four comes because you prayed. So that's the first problem. Text doesn't give you that permission. But here's the here's second problem. I think this is probably a bigger problem. <laughs> to take that stance on the answer to those questions robs us of some beautiful truth that God wants to give to us. And that is this, that God in his sovereignty, in his infinite wisdom, in his goodness, he somehow allows us the good, the bad, the pain, the hardship, all of it. He allows our lives to be participants in what he's doing in the world, what he's doing in redemptive history, how he is at work to restore and redeem all things back to the way he wants them to be. So think about this with me for a second. What was it that caused Zechariah and Elizabeth to pray these prayers? Why were, they, why were they praying? Why were they up all night praying? Why did they desperately call out to God to send them a son? Because of their barrenness. It was because of their brokenness. It was because of their pain. It was because of their hurt. It was those dark nights of the soul that caused them to cry out to God. And it was those very same prayers that were, that were kind of, prayed that were uttered as a result of their pain and their suffering that God used for his redemptive purposes. So what's the point, Chris? Is, is this a theology class, Chris? No, 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 no. This is not, this is not just a theology class. 
This is deeply personal. This is deeply pastoral. At the hardship and the pain that you're going through right now, that you're feeling right now, the suffering that our world is experiencing right now, it's not in vain. It is not in vain. That everything we go through, everything we experience, it's not that God casts it upon us, but in his grace, he uses it. He uses it. It's beautiful truth. I don't know where you're at in your spiritual journey, but but this idea is the most hope-filled concept that I can think of right now. I mean, just look out at our world. It's an utter disaster. I already joked, right? It's not just a a bad-smelling candle. It's a dumpster fire. That's the Christmas ornament for 2020. It's a burning dumpster fire that you hang on your Christmas tree. That's 2020 in a nutshell. On fire, porta potty, on fire, dumpster. 2020. Disaster. We got, it's like bizarro world, right? We have conspiracy theories being shared liberally. We have, we have anti-maskers who are like spitting on, you know, uh, oh, just innocent cashiers because they don't want to wear a mask. We got pandemics. We've got, you know, a mental health crisis. We've got all kinds of stuff. We've got people calling on their neighbor, calling the police on their neighbors because they have their grandma over for dinner. Like it's just, it's a mess. It's an absolute mess. Why? Because nobody knows what to do with their pain and suffering. We have no idea what to do with brokenness. We have no idea what to do with pain because our secular, humanistic worldview, the the water that we swim in, the garden that we have grown up in, it doesn't have a category for 2020. It doesn't have a category that says maybe somehow, some way, some shape, some form, there's a God out there who loves you and knows you and can actually redeem your pain. And so when a 2020 happens, when the pain comes, when the hardship comes, we don't know what to do. And we lose our minds. And all you're seeing out in the world, on your social media feeds, everywhere, is just the fruit of a whole group of people that have no idea how to suffer well. Tim Keller, author, theologian, pastor, preacher, he says that Western culture is the least equipped to deal with pain and suffering. Because we believe this idea that we're like some cosmic accident, that we're some slightly more evolved, highly more evolved animal, and that there's no rhyme or reason to what happens in the world. It's just blind chance. And that worldview doesn't actually allow us to suffer well. But the gospel comes in, Jesus comes in, and he says, I'm gonna rescue and redeem you, I'm gonna save you, and I'm gonna save your pain, I'm gonna use your pain, I'm gonna use your hardship, I'm gonna use the barrenness of your soul to move along my redemptive purposes. It's not in vain. You might not know why right now, but what you do know is that it's not in vain. But there's something else here. Christianity is not the only worldview that can make sense of our pain and our hardship, but it's also the only idea in the marketplace of ideas that can actually bring us some comfort. I mean, just think with me for a second about Christmas. We're moving towards Christmas, right? It's happening. Can't stop it. It's like a freight train going downhill with the brakes aren't working. It's coming. Got to shop. Got to get her done. 
And when you strip away Christmas, strip away the llamas and the goofy sweaters and all the sappy sentimentalism, what are you left with? You're left with baby Jesus. Eight pounds, six ounce baby Jesus. But it's not just eight pounds, six ounce baby Jesus. It's actually the God of the universe taking on flesh. It's the God of the universe entering into humanity, entering into the brokenness, entering into the world. And, and if you were to fast forward the gospel of Luke to the, to the high point of the ministry of Jesus, where does his life end? Right, he's perfect. He's, he's more perfect. He's more blameless than Zechariah and Elizabeth. And just as they experience barrenness, Jesus experiences barrenness. He goes to the cross He dies a murderous, torturous, horrible death on the cross, but more than murderous and torturous, more than physical pain, he experiences full spiritual barrenness where he experiences the full separation from his heavenly father and he enters into the barrenness. He speaks into the barrenness. He takes on to his shoulders all of the barrenness of the world. He knows, think about this, the night before he goes to the cross, he prays to his heavenly father, take this cup from me. But if not, then not my will, your will be done. He actually knows what it's like to pray and not have your prayers answered. In other words, what? And this is beautiful, friends, but Jesus knows what it's like to suffer. He knows what it feels like to go through pain and hardship. So when you pray to him, you pray to a God who hears you. You pray to a God who has experienced what you've gone through and more. He weeps with you. He mourns with you. He can wipe your tears. He can hold you in his arms and say, I know. I know. It's good news. For a year like 2020 has been, it is good news. The story goes on, verse 18 you need to pick up the pace here. Verse 18, Zechariah asked the angel, how can, this is great, how can I be sure of this? I'm an old man and my wife is well along in years. Okay, so think about this, right? Zechariah must not be the sharpest knife in the drawer. This guy just won the priest lottery. He's standing out in the temple, outside of the Holy of Holies, in the holy place. There's an angel who's appeared to him and he's like, I'm not sure that this is gonna work. Like we're pretty old, like, and I don't, you know, the plumbing isn't, you know, all that it used to be. It's like, do you not understand? Like, this is the God of the universe. If he's created this moment, he can, he can solve this problem. He'll figure it out, Zechariah, okay? Story goes on. Angel responds. Verse 19, the angel said to him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I have been sent to speak to you and to tell you this good news. And now you will be silent, and you will not be able to speak until the day this happens, because you did not believe my words, which will come true at their appointed time. In other words, like I'll paraphrase what Gabriel's saying here. Zechariah, you're a potato head. You need to be quiet, okay? So he, he, silences, uh, he silences Zechariah. Verse 21, meanwhile, the people were waiting for Zechariah and wondering why he stayed so long in the temple. It's a long time to be sitting on your knees in prayer. Verse 22, when he came out, he could not speak. And they realized that he'd seen a vision in the temple for he kept making signs to them, uh, but he remained unable to speak. Verse 23, when his time of service... Uh, When his time of service was completed, he returned home. And after this, his wife Elizabeth became pregnant, and for five months, she remained in seclusion. I mean, imagine what this would have been like for Elizabeth, right? Zechariah comes home. He can't speak. 
So he can't tell her what's going on. He can't communicate with her. And then all of a sudden, she discovers she's pregnant. This is amazing. This is amazing. She's praising God because she's pregnant. She's praising God because her husband can't speak. It's a good day for her. My wife would love this. Probably not the I'm pregnant part, but the my husband can't speak part. But for Elizabeth, this is awesome. She's loving it. God has been faithful. God has heard my prayers. God has, has responded. He's, he's listened. He's moving in my life. And then verse 25, the Lord has done this for me, she said. She gives him honor. She gives him praise. In these days, he has shown his favor and he's taken away my disgrace from among the people. And we get this picture here of Elizabeth and Zechariah at the beginning. It's barrenness. It's hopeless. It's helpless. God responds to their prayer. He uses their barrenness. And here we get a picture of her disgrace being taken away. We get a picture of the shame being taken away. But this is, this is really pointing forward, isn't it? I mean, again, we know who John is gonna be. John, the Lord is gracious, is gonna be John the Baptist. John the Baptist, the forerunner for Jesus. And here we get this picture of God speaking into 400 years of silence. We get this picture of God speaking into the, the silence of Zechariah and Elizabeth's life. And when we come to Jesus, what do we see? That he is the ultimate answer to the ultimate silence. He speaks the loudest words into the darkest places. He comes in and his perfect life, his death on the cross, it takes away not just Elizabeth's shame, but all the shame, all the disgrace as he bears the weight of sin and death on his shoulders. And Jesus speaks into the void, speaks into the emptiness. He offers life. He offers hope. He offers grace. He offers mercy. And every bit of barrenness and hopelessness and sadness that we experience on this side of eternity is meant to take us to this place where we long for Jesus, where we long for him to come again. We're just like the Advent season. We are awaiting the arrival of Jesus. Church, we are in an Advent season where we await the arrival of Jesus. The Bible story ends with these words, come Lord Jesus, come. Come, Lord Jesus, come. Do you long for Jesus? Let me pray for us. Jesus, we, we long for you. If there's anything that is true right now, it is that we are desperate for you. Our world is desperate for you. There has never been a season, a year where Christmas, the story of you coming in and saving has been more needed. And so Jesus, we, we cry out to you, come. We declare in our hearts that we long for you. We need you and we want you. 
thank you that you love us so much. It's in your good name we pray. And all God's children said, amen. Amen, church. Thank you.